Follow along with me, would you, as I read this passage. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who've not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I, will give you, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Let's speak to him. Lord, thank you for your truth. Thank you for the power of your Spirit working through it in our hearts. We come here to know you better, to be transformed by your word and your Spirit. We pray that would happen today. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Mike. So, if you didn't notice by Mike's reading, it's another mild passage. It's really easy and simple. There's seven churches in Revelations chapter, Revelation, I keep going Revelations, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. There's five of those churches that have strong rebukes. And as I've mentioned before, and I was reminded this week, I don't know how, but I got them all. Anthony's teaching two of these. He got the easy peasy lemon squeezy churches where everything's good. And I want to reshuffle the deck, but it's a little bit late for that. So my hope is that is I've had to endure the pain of reading through this and studying that, that for both me and you, it would be purifying. What's happening in Thyatira seems in many ways similar to Pergamum last week. And again, uh, another temptation that I had. Uh, was just repeat the same sermon of last week and see if anybody notices. <laughs> Save me time. Um, but that's not what I've done. So there's commendation for the good, and there's correction on their compromise. There's commendation on the good, God-glorifying things that are happening in their midst and what they are about, and there's correction for where they have compromised. And as these letters continue, we get a grander vision of Jesus that comes with this comprehensive exam of the church with a call to repent and a promise of victory. We see Jesus here who, if you notice to Ephesus in chapter 2, he holds the seven stars. In Smyrna, he is the first and the last. In Pergamum, uh, he has a sharp two-edged sword. And here in Thyatira, he has 
eyes like a flame of fire, and feet that are like burnished bronze. The language here is twofold. One, first, it comes from Daniel, and Jesus is identified as the Son of God. An interesting thing is John, the, the writer of the Revelation, in his gospel account, and there's some theories of who wrote what, and in his gospel account, he loves the term Son of God, uses it over and over and over again. But in the book of Revelation, it's only used once, and it's here, where Jesus is identified is the Son of God. It seems his imagery is much broader in that he goes towards the lamb language who was slain before the foundation of the world. Later he'll talk about the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And you get all of this imagery, again, that's to be taken together to get a fuller vision of who Jesus is. And the imagery, these eyes is flaming fire, his feet is burnished bronze, not only come from Daniel and other scripture, but it was language that would have been familiar to the people of this city. Every city has some sort of personality, right? We know that today in some of your favorite cities. The reason you love those cities is they have a sort of personality, right? And I want to just rip on all these major cities, um, but I'll, I'll just withhold that to myself. Seattle's the one that comes to mind. Um, and then Portland. And I, and I love them both, but they both, uh, anyways, I'll, again, I'll just withhold my pride to myself for now. Thyatira was not known for its massive temples like Ephesus or impressive trade like the others, but what it was known for is its workers' guilds, I learned this week. In the day, in, in from ancient, uh, you know, digs in, in history has shown us that there's ancient inscriptions in this city that talk about wool workers, linen workers, makers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronze smiths. All have been found in this ancient city. If you're familiar with the book of Acts at all, you get a glimpse of this lady, Lydia, who is a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. And so it was kind of more of a blue collar type place. And so as Jesus' evaluation comes, this imagery, again, of eyes of a flaming fire should have or would have incited for them the, the metallurgists of the time that would use flame to heat up the metal and melt it down so that the dross and the impurities could be removed. Again, the imagery of his feet being as burnished bronze would have struck a chord as that would have been so very familiar to them in their day. The evaluation of Jesus is meant to evoke that he is one who purifies and he's one that is strong and stable. That Jesus, the Son of God, is one who purifies his people and he is stable and strong. But before moving forward into his evaluation, I think it's helpful for us if not daily, then at least weekly, to reevaluate our hearts and go, do we trust Jesus as that? Do we trust Jesus as one who is not only uh, willing, but able and trustworthy to purify us? Is Jesus strong and stable? Do we see Jesus as holy and pure? Because if we can't trust that about him, his nature and character, then 
his evaluation is not going to have any effect on our lives or our church. This is the thing that we have to keep in front of us day after day after day. Are we going to trust Jesus with everything? Because if Jesus is pure and the purifier of his people, if Jesus is strong and stable in wanting to strengthen his people, then we must hear him, trust him, and respond to what he says. A holy and good God wants what's best for his people. Jackie Hill Perry says in her book, Holier Than Thou, if God is holy, then he can't sin. If God can't sin, then he can't sin against me. If he can't sin against me, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being there is? You can see the logic in it. If God is good and holy and trustworthy and can't sin, then he can't sin against me. So what he says to me is ultimately for my good. Now, I want to say that that doesn't come as an automatic for any of us. And at this junction, we have to distinguish in our own hearts, is that because we have a healthy level of just human doubt or because we're unbelieving? And there's distinction between those two things. A doubt would press in and ask the questions and, and with a faithful kind of hesitation, if there is such a thing, would press into the evaluation of Jesus. It's kind of the man in, in Mark that wants Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus says, do you believe? And he says, yeah, but help my unbelief. One of the most true, honest human interactions that there is in all the Gospels. There's that aspect of coming to Jesus and going, what you're going to say is going to be hard. And I want to believe and I want to follow and I want to trust. But help me in that. Whereas unbelief would go, yeah, I just don't think you know best. I like what you say about this, that, or the other thing, but when it comes to my thing, I'm going to do me on this one. We have to distinguish where we are at in that. And again, scripture has a whole lot of, of room for people with questions and doubts and fears and concerns, but in a posture of trust. And so Jesus' evaluation begins really good. I know your works. Your love, your faith and service and patient endurance. And even this, that your latter works exceed the first. Like Ephesus, and even Pergamum, Smyrna, there's good things happening in the midst of God's people. And I don't know that there's any church that is seeking to follow Jesus that is wholly bad. Like there's always good that can be happening but also we have to be aware of the compromise. They're growing in all of that. And again, it's good to note that Jesus sees this. We will drill down on the shortcomings and how that relates to us today. But we can't forget that Jesus sees the good. And you, and them, and us. He's not the one that takes the evaluation. Maybe you were the kid that got the report card and it's like all A's and one B. And it's like, what's up with the B? But I got all A's everywhere else. That teacher was just rude. No, there's a celebration. That's why I told my parents at least. My childhood trauma coming out on you. Um, two B's in high school. Anyways. 
Jesus sees the good. He doesn't simply focus on the bad, but he sees and he celebrates and he commends the good. And being pure, again, and being strong and being stable, he wants the same for his people, and there were problems in their midst. The sins of some were affecting the whole. Last week, we heard about the Nicolaitans and the teaching of Balaam. This week, we get introduced to Jezebel. I don't know what baggage you bring into the room. Um, this isn't necessarily my baggage, but I know for some, Jezebel has been a weaponized term. You, you say it about a lady who's got an attitude. It's the spirit of Jezebel that fundamentalists want to, to throw around from time to time. That's not what John is doing. He's highlighting for them a story in the biblical account about an evil woman that committed a lot of evil with God's people and King at the time. What happened? Well, you can look at the account. It begins in 1 Kings chapter 16. Ahab, the son of Omri, is king, and he, as many kings in the time, did evil in the sight of the Lord. But what was unique about him is that he marries this woman, Jezebel, the daughter of a Sidonian king, and there's all sorts of problems that unfold from this unholy relationship. The essence is this, three things. First is what she does is she uh, cuts off all of the prophets. So all the prophets of the time who are supposed to speak the word of the Lord to the people of God, she says, uh-uh. So the first thing that Jezebel does then, and not in the weaponized term, but the teaching of Jezebel in John's term then, in Thyatira, is she eliminates truth and truth tellers. The second thing we see in the story of Jezebel is that uh, she encourages people to put themselves at the center. There's one instance of King Ahab uh, longing for this vineyard, Naboth's field, and she says, you're the king, like you're the center of the universe. So first, Jezebel eliminates truth, second, places self at the center, and then the third thing is get what you want, and we see this unfold time and time again, and again specifically with Ahab and Naboth's field. And what that results in is wreckage for King Ahab, it has ripple effects for God's people, and ultimately the judgment of God is what that invites. And that motif that we see in 1 Kings chapter 16 all the way up into her judgment in 2 Kings chapter 9 that motif serves as a metaphor for this church in Thyatira. There's teaching that was happening in this first century church that was leading people towards sexual immorality and idolatry in a sense that that's totally fine. And so the threat of judgment on false teachers and those that following the teaching is at the door. In case you didn't see it the first time, let's read it again. Chapter 2 verse 21 through 23. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. That's why I start with, do we trust Jesus? Because Jesus tells us a lot of good and sweet and, and comforting things. 
And Jesus tells us in them some severe things when it comes to sin. And this, I think, has been one of the battles throughout the ages of, of God's judgment in what we make of it. But if we see sin as being against God and his good creation, a force that dehumanizes in this world, then it must be extracted and repented of. Joshua Ryan Butler, I've quoted him before. He's got a great book, Skeletons in God's Closet, where he talks about uh, sin and hell and holy war. He says, to ask God to redeem Jerusalem but not cast sin outside the city walls is like asking a doctor to heal your body without excising the disease. Like asking the light to arise without casting out the darkness. Like asking for restoration to come and destruction to remain. It is to ask for a contradiction. God excludes sin from his kingdom because of his goodness, not in opposition or in spite of it. We talked about this last week. Kim, you weren't here, but I brought up all the medical providers, and it's as though they come into your office and they got a big old melanoma, and they're like, I'll just take a Band-Aid. You're like, no, I got a knife for this. That's how we treat this. My pretty face. And it's like, it's going to be a lot less pretty dead under the ground. Is that my morbid sense of humor coming out? But what happens in an individual and in a teaching and eventually in a society is we take what God has said that's not good for you and we justify it. And we do exactly what Jezebel does. We remove truth, put ourselves at the center, and ultimately get what we think we want. Eliminate truth. Then it seems as though they just go, well, it is the old adage that's been around throughout all the ages. If it feels good, do it. And what I find unique and troubling today and presenting an interesting challenge when it comes to truth is that anybody and everyone, and there's such good from this, and then there's this flip side like there is with so many things. If you want to eliminate truth or just create your own thing, there's all the experts in the world to support your case, right? Am I the only one that's like, somebody's like, oh, I believe this now, and you're like, but scripture, and they're like, no, well, I got this theologian, and there's this book, and there's this podcast, and that's now my tribe. How do you deal with that? They're like, well, no, because my tribe says that's bad. What do you do when truth is eliminated? Well, again, we have to see this whole pattern. Truth being eliminated, which ultimately puts self at the center as the North Star, and ultimately, it's because humans want to get what they want, which is often, and if you look throughout history, ultimately is manifest in physical and sexual desires. This is where I had to like pull back a little bit last week because it was family worship and I didn't want some of your four-year-olds asking you know, questions that aren't necessarily there for their time that I'll press into a little bit more today. What we see today around the debates of gender and sexuality are unique 
and as old as time. They're unique in terms of we haven't had a whole lot of precedent for what's happening at the scale we're seeing it in our country and the world today around a, a broad scale acceptance of homosexuality, transgenderism, and, and all that comes with that. There's a uniqueness to that today. But it's as old as time because, again, if you look at strict scripture and history, people, there's been debauchery of different shapes and form. There's some of which that was celebrated in Roman society at this time that's now looked down upon. And, but we find ourselves at a unique time that ultimately, if you do the history, and this isn't just to rip on boomers at all, but what we're seeing today is the fruit of what was planted in the sexual revolution in the 60s. It's just clear history of the trajectory of what happened and what's now being manifested today. And what I think this text helps us in is that there is an urgency to it, but without alarmism. There's an urgency to it without alarmism. There's this urgency of for those that are living outside the will and way of God as revealed in scripture, as his story, repent. There's this invitation in Revelation again and again and again to, to repent. And I've said again and again and again, this is a word that often has negative connotation in part because of what happened in the 60s to the response to the sexual revolution and, you know, the, the street corner preachers and hellfire brimstone type people and, and all of that. But there's this goodness and invitation to where God's saying this is ultimately going to lead to destruction in this life and in eternity. And so turn to me. Trust in me. Follow after me in all of your desires. But it's not alarmist in that the sky is falling and it's all going to hell in a handbasket. Because God's people in this time, and God ultimately is not leading them to allegiance in a place or a city or a nation ultimately, but his kingdom. And so... I'm with many of you that look at the world today and I'm raising kids in the midst of it and I go, how's this going to turn out? Like, don't like this. But I think Christ calls us to live in a way, again, that isn't alarmist and angry and, and all that, that is Christ-like and concerned, but ultimately is about trusting in his kingdom and his way. And does that by living into this, by placing our lives on truth, by no longer putting ourselves at the center, by not being about what we want, but what about God wants. And so how do we live and how were they called to live and respond when there was sin in their midst? Well, the first thing is this. They were called to recognize the forces that were at work that I think I at least can often lose sight of. Again and again and again, we see the forces of evil at, at work in the world, in the devil. There's all these references to Satan in the book of Revelation. And, and then also the flesh. 
And if you've been with us for any amount of time, you know we circle back to this often. Of seeing sin not just as a bad thing that you do that's like slap on the wrist, don't do that anymore. But sin is this, this comprehensive force of evil that, yes, does dwell in the human heart, but also works in systems and structures because we have an enemy that's at work in the world. And so there's this worldly opposition against God that is uh, upheld by evil that is in the demonic. You see that throughout the Bible. So by just simply recognizing that that's happening, you go, oh, okay. There's a Solonitsyn quote that the, the line of evil goes between all of these things, but ultimately it has this line that is right within every single human heart. And so we have to recognize that in ourselves and in the world, which again takes away pride and hubris in every single one of us. But by the grace of God, there go any one of us, two steps away from shipwrecking our entire lives. So we've got to go, okay, what are we paying attention to? And what are the forces that are at work in the midst of the world? Recognize the forces that are at work. And in that, for those of you that aren't caught up in sexual immorality, there's this good little caveat that I appreciate in, uh, I believe it's verse 24. And 25, it's like, if that isn't you, he says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I don't lay on you any additional burden. Hold fast to what you have until I come. The Greek there is kriteo, hold on, like get a grip and don't let go of that truth, of that teaching of that rest, of that home that you have in Christ. So, okay, there's evil in the world. There's wickedness in the church. It's often manifests itself in idolatry and sexual immorality. We're supposed to recognize that there's forces at work. And then in this, we need to recognize that doctrine is always attached to daily life. And so when there is a wide-scale elimination of truth, and that even becomes a term of, well, what even is truth? You have your truth and I have my truth. And we have to recognize that what we believe, every single one of us have a doctrinal framework. And that's attached to daily life. What we believe, not necessarily what we say we believe, but what we believe flows into how we live. And theology really does matter. Because it creates structures and systems, first in the human heart and then within a church, within a life, within a city. This is one of the reasons in which we do membership. There's this, not every church does it, not every church has to do it, but our conviction, the elders' conviction here at the church is, is this. That if I or Anthony or any of the elders go off the rails when it comes to this teaching, what are God's people supposed to do? What we typically do in 21st century America is, see you later, I'm going to go to a more theologically sound church, which is understandable. But the fallacy in that is believing that the church belongs to the pastor, not the people. Right? Union church is not my church. I play a role in it, and I'm a leader within it, but this sucker ain't mine. And so if I go off the rails, your job is to get me out. 
So how do you do that? You're, if you are a member of the church, you bring the charge against the elders, and the elders have the authority to remove me. If you ever go to another church, just this is one of the first questions I would ask. How do you fire the pastor? Maybe not the first question. <laughs> Maybe not the first question, but seriously, if I go to a church, my question are, how are finances handled? And, and what's the leadership structure? Because I've seen, and I know some of you have seen, like when the pastor's untouchable, it's, and the pastor has the power to dismiss anybody and everybody, that's problematic. When the pastor goes off the rails and all of a sudden either leading people astray and the only vote you have is with your feet for the door, like that's fine. But again, this church is, is a collective. It's a people. And this is why we do membership. We go, here's our church. Here's our doctrine. Here's what we believe. And if John or Anthony... Bill, Josh, or any of the elders go off the rails, you all have power and authority to make something happen. And, and I've told the elders, with the temptation of teaching when it comes to sexuality today, if you know me, I'm not one to, to get angry or thump around it or, or rail against this, but I've told them, if I stray from orthodox teaching in this regard, get me out of the pulpit. Because I, I've seen and know the temptation within this. And again, that's it's probably a coffee conversation outside of this. But it is a gospel issue. Not everything is a gospel issue. Most things are not gospel issues. But if you look throughout the entirety of scripture from Genesis to Revelation, you see the image of God uniquely creating male and female. And you see that teaching withheld throughout scripture and affirmed by Jesus. And that comparison, Ephesians 5, to Christ's love for his church being that is between a husband and a wife. When you see that, again, it's not something you hold to, to fight somebody over, but when you see that it is a gospel issue, you go, I, I, can't, I can't release that. Teaching around sexuality. And at the same time, we also need to be uh, correcting where there's lovelessness, as said in Ephesus. So again, if this is your first time, you're like, wow, gosh, it's one of those churches where it's just going to be a soapbox against culture every single week. No, this is the text we find ourselves in. And if you want to go back like two, three weeks, I railed against legalism and Phariseeism that time when the text addressed that. God is after the good of his people. Again, recognize the forces at work. Realize that doctrine is attached to daily life. And then this, that our positions need to be coupled with loving posture. This is the circle back to Ephesus. If we have truth and we hold it like a baseball bat, or we treat it as though it's a, a boxing glove from which we're going to fight the world and each other, we've missed the point. Truth is always to be coupled with love in our interactions both in and outside of the church. And so my personal, I'm not going to project this on you. This isn't like uh, biblical law. This is just my personal posture that I'll share with you. If I'm interacting with someone who isn't a Christian, 
my conversation will rarely, if ever, go to morals with them because I'm not concerned in changing their morality. My concern is whether or not the tomb is empty, primarily first. And if the tomb is empty, then a lot flows from that. Then, then the guy who rose from the dead has a say about everything. But we got to start there. And if the tomb is empty, and I believe it is, then what he says about anything and everything matters and holds weight. And my job is to bend the knee to him and follow after him in that. And if somebody isn't a Christian, then I'm not going to project Christian morality on them. Now, and this is, you can go on a walk with Josh and talk about this because I know Josh is fascinating. He teaches ethics and all that. There is an interesting sub-level discussion somewhere in there about what's best for a pluralistic society, right? What's happening in politics and what's good for a nation and all that. That's a separate discussion for a separate time. I'm saying one-on-one -on -one with people, my starting point is the death, burial, and resurrection. And from there flows personal ethics. I'm not going to start and project a personal uh, morality on them, which is why there's rightly so some concerns of what's happening in our day and age, right? But our call as Christians is inviting people to Jesus and following after him. And from there, as we do so with love and compassion and looking to connect with them, the, the convictions into life flow. Two more things, and then we'll close. So recognize the powers. We have positions that are coupled with a loving posture. The call for Christians to engrave holiness into our habits and hold fast. And then the final one will be that Jezebel is always judged. First, engrave holiness into our habits. Um, this isn't to achieve right standing before God. Like, if you want God to be happy with you, you have to read your Bible, you have to pray, you have to tithe, you have to, you know, whatever the, the Christian circle is. Often pastors can, can present it that way. Not all the time. But what we see is that holiness flows in and through our habits. And the healthiest way for that to happen is to come from the place of adoption and acceptance and belovedness with God. Because if scripture is true, then it teaches us that there's nothing that we can do to add to the work of, the salva of salvation. Uh, Dallas Willard, one of his most famous quotes, is that grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. And we have to kind of keep the temperature of our heart to realize, is this behavior coming that I want to earn or curry God's favor? Or is it coming from the fact that I already have it? And that can be a total game changer for our lives and our habits. What we see is that idolatry has this interesting cycle, at least this is my uh, cheap seats view, that when we live into idolatry, there's often this sense of apathy, just this dullness that we have. But then there's this, cur this uh, generation of some sort of aggression that could be towards anger, towards lust, whatever. There's this, this feeling that is drummed up that then leads to an activism in it. So it's this dull, I don't know anything, and then, oh, I want the, this thing, whatever that may be, and then I go after it. And then that ultimately disappoints, and we're back to repeat the cycle. Whereas habits of holiness are around repentance, turning from sin towards God, it's around worship, love, 
and hope that's generated from that, that has a far more freeing, stabilizing, sustaining power in life. So when we talk about holiness, again, this is something that is misunderstood. One of my favorite quotes is from J.C. Ryle. He says, holiness is the habit of being one mind with God. According as we find his mind described in scripture, again, there has to be a basis for truth for Christians. It's his word. It is the habit of agreeing with God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. Eugene Peterson says the same thing with a little bit of a different bent. He says, does this teaching return you to God revealed in Christ, his words, his acts, or does it excite you with what you'll get, acquire, and feel? Does this teaching return you to yourself? And I think when he says yourself, he means like you have died. Paul's words in Colossians, you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. Does it return you to yourself, your truest self, who you are, where you are? Or does it incite ambition, discontent, and a desire to be someone else, somewhere else? And so we have to constantly evaluate our habits. Is this leading towards holiness? Is this leading towards a deeper and richer and fuller life with God and his people? Or is it causing, ultimately, us to stray? It's okay. Recognize the forces in the world. Doctrines attached to daily life. Position your, uh, positions couple it with a, a healthy, loving posture. Engrave holiness into habits. And I'm not going to spend much time on this. Jezebel will always be judged. There's a mystery around it all, though. I read it to the kids uh, at youth camp yesterday just because it's gross and fascinating. You can do your homework. Second Kings chapter 9, where Jezebel's ultimately uh, thrown out and eaten by dogs. But the mystery of it all, there was this battle going on between Elijah and Jezebel. Elijah doesn't get to see the judgment of Jezebel. God took him first. And so when and how evil is ultimately judged, we don't get a say. So many of us carry that mystery of life of being wronged, being offended, having the effects of false teaching on our lives, people sinning against us, and we go, how long, O oh Lord? And we don't know, and there's a mystery that we hold within it all of sin and its effects in this world and in our lives. And we hold that with a mystery. But the promise for the church and Thyatira and the promise for us today is that God knows and ultimately one day he will judge. And until he does, there's this sweet, strong invitation for us to repent and follow after him. And the promise in that of holding to him is that one day it will all be made right. One day we will rule and reign with him. One day Christ will be ultimately and forever our light. He's going to make it all new. And that's the promise of conquering that God's people have in his word. I'll close with this quote from C.S. Lewis uh, at the last battle. It says, and he spoke as he spoke. This is the caricature of, of Jesus being Aslan. He no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. 
But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. So followers of Jesus, hold fast. If or where there's sin, let's repent of it and let's follow him until he makes all things new. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that in your love, you seek to purify us and stabilize us. And we recognize that sin does the opposite. And so I pray that you would give us the perspective and the strength, the courage to look at ourselves, our church, and really the, the forces at work in this world rightly. And we would depend on you, trust in you, follow you, and in the joy and hope that you produce, that you would equip us and enable us to invite others to follow as well. That we would be a people that are truly salt and light in the midst of this world. That our presence would make Prescott and the surrounding areas a better place. Not simply because of morals, but because of the power of the resurrection. And so God help us. In the name of Jesus our Savior we pray. Amen.